0: So, on your bulletin, not this week, but typically on your bulletin, there is a section for questions. Uh, and then they, so sometimes during a sermon, you know, you ask questions, questions get sparked in your mind, and sometimes you hold on to those and uh, you just never get them answered. So, we wanted to give you the opportunity to write them down and then turn them in, and, and uh, I can answer them at some point. Well, uh my, my goal when we started this was to, on the fifth Sunday of every month, I would just answer questions. Well, I'm starting to get a backlog. So I decided I better start answering some of these sooner rather than later. So I decided I'm just going to start plucking them away here and there uh, on the end of the month. So we're going to do that, and then we'll get into the sermon. This question this week is, we follow all of the Ten Commandments except remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why do we as Christians or why do we as a Christian culture seem to forget about this one, and how do we obey the commandments in the correct way? All right, so I've got several points to work through this. I'm going to do it pretty quickly, but first of all, I don't know if I entirely agree with the question. And what I mean by that is uh, I think we do, for, we do neglect this commandment, right? I think this commandment, out of all the commandments, maybe gets neglected the most, like we don't talk about it a whole lot. But one of the points of the Ten Commandments uh, is that we're not going to be able to perfectly fulfill them all, right? So uh, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, the the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, Well, how many of you in your life have lived that perfectly? Remember, any type of idol, any time you put anything in your life before God, You're breaking that commandment. Well, how often do we do that? We do that all the time. So part of the points of the Ten Commandments is to show us that we are imperfect. That's part of the point of it. So every single one of these Ten Commandments, we actually fell at all the time. Now, we could skip on down to the you shall not murder, and you're really quickly like, hey, Aaron, I got you here. I've never murdered. But Jesus really sets the standard for us when he says, if you have hated someone in your heart, then you have committed murder. So we see that every single one of these commands we fell at. Now, oftentimes we like to we like to kind of emphasize one or the other. And I do agree that the remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy is one that we kind of neglect. So, uh I'll get to why we neglect that, but first I want to say that the Ten Commandments were part of the law, so we're no longer bound to them. So if you remember, the t- we get the Ten Commandments after the Exodus. So Israel's a nation was in Egypt. They uh, God frees them from Egypt. He brings them into the wilderness, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. So this is part of the what's called the Mosaic Law, the, co- the Mosaic Covenant. So God is making a covenant with his people that they should obey these commands. So, first of all, we should note that this is part of the Old Covenant, and it's made exclusively with Israel. So this was never really for the Gentile people anyway. But then when Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant, then it no longer applied to Israel anymore. Now, with that in mind, each one of these commands, there are actually principles that we can apply our life to, or we can apply to our life. So with every single one, we should be able to draw the principle out and then apply that contextually to our culture today. So for example, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. That's pretty easy. We can see that the principle is in the law, right? Don't have anything to go before God. Okay, so then how do we apply that in our day and age, especially in a secular culture where we might not easily identify gods. So that's what we want to do is we want to take each one of these and we want to find the principle behind it and then apply that to how we can live that out in our culture. So when it comes to the Sabbath, we'll read the the law here. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. And then he gives the reason why. For in in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right. So, first we have to note, once again, that this is to Israel as a whole. So individually they're going to apply it, but also corporately they're going to apply it. How do we apply it today? So I think we already got to this answer, why do we as Christian culture seem to forget about this one? And I think the answer is, uh, it's in our nature to not rest. Humans love to not rest. We love to be busy, we love to feel productive, but I think part of that is also because we value self-sufficiency. And in particular, in our culture We value self-sufficiency. We want to be independent. We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to be dependent on anyone or anything. Well, to take a day of rest, especially for Israel in those days, was to say, I have to rely on God for this. That's why it was so unheard of during Second Temple Judaism when uh, Israel started living in other places during the dispersion, and, and people could easily identify a Jew because a Jew would take a day off. And everybody else in the world thought that was preposterous. You might not make it if you took a day off. You might starve to death if you took a day off. So to take a day off meant you had to trust God. So I think this is one of the reasons why we like to neglect the Sabbath, is because we want to be self-sufficient and we don't want to have to rely on God. I think that's the reason why. But now let's get into to the rest of this on how can we apply this principle of rest to today's culture. And I go back to this is a corporate command, so much so that he even signals out the sojourner. So someone that is just traveling through was supposed to take a day of rest. Now, how can you take a day of rest if no one in your culture takes a day of rest, right? Right? So it was so ingrained to Israel that it would be fairly easy for them to do. In fact, Israel ends up going so far overboard with this because they wanted to make sure they obeyed the law. And so what happened is instead of studying scripture for themselves, oftentimes they would come to the rabbi and they would say, Rabbi, how do I obey this law? Like, what constitutes work here? And they wanted to put up such parameters that they would never disobey it. It actually became kind of work to obey this law. In fact, the night or right before Sabbath would occur, they they would hang uh, linens over any type of mirror just in case a woman might walk by and see a hair out of place and correct her hair. That would have been considered work. So you see how they kind of went overboard on this. Now, in a culture like that, it can kind of be easy Okay, it's going to get shut down. If you've ever been to Israel on Friday night, because their Sabbath would start at sundown on Friday, the whole city shuts down. But how do we take this idea of rest? That God knows we need rest, and so he designed rest into our rhythms. How do we take that and apply that today? Because some of you, your jobs will never let you take Saturday off. I think... It means we have to be intentional about rest. And I don't think we can turn to any one person. I think we don't want to fall into the same sin that Israel did with like, here's how you do it. Because I find this restful, you also have to find this restful. So we have to be intentional and we have to figure out what refreshes me. How has God designed me that I can be refreshed as well? So I think that's kind of the answer. Number one is why do we as Christian culture seem to forget about this one is because uh, we want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to rely on God. But number two is how can we actually live this out in a correct way? And that is we find the principle that God created us to rest. And then we are intentional with how we find rest and applying it to our own lives. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to rest on Saturday. That was for Israel, that was a corporate thing. We're not bound by that law, so we don't have to take Saturday off, which is a relief for some of you that have to work. That's your career, is working on Saturday. But that means that you have to be intentional at some point throughout the week to take a day off. Now, what does that mean to take a day off? It's gonna be different for everyone. For some people, taking a hike in the woods is gonna be restful, especially for some of you that work at a computer all day. Or maybe your job is to just sit and read a book all day. You might find it refreshing to go for a walk. But for some of you who have intense labor all day, you might find it more refreshing to sit around and read a book all day. So I think the point is you have to take the principle that God created us to have rest. And then you have to find your cultural context and be intentional with how you can find rest in that week. So that's my answer. If you want clarifying uh, answers, go ahead and fill out a paper and put it in the box, and maybe I can clarify that more for you. On to Colossians on that note. We're studying through Colossians. We've got a, a series right now called By Him and For Him. Oftentimes, when people think or talk about heaven, we think about rewards, we dream about, well, maybe rest, how restful it will be, or maybe we dream about hobbies and all the hobbies we're going to pick up in heaven, and we think about eternity and how heaven is just going to be fun for eternity, and and sometimes we we focus in on rewards, and I know some people that that's like their motivation to do good, like if I just do more good works, I'll have bigger rewards in heaven, and I think all of this thinking typically when we think about heaven is actually a small picture of God or a small view of God. That's usually when we think about heaven and we think about hobbies and we think about good times in heaven and we think about rewards in heaven, it's actually revealing that we have a small view of God. And I say that because I think heaven is going to be something so much more than anything we can think of here. In fact, in Revelation, we see that those who do earn crowns, those who who do really great works here on earth, so much so that they earn crowns in heaven, what do they do when they see God? They take off their crown and they toss them at his feet. Because they realize that God is so much more. Everything you've ever dreamed about, all the fulfillment that you could ever have in life is found in God. So really, when it comes to eternity, we're going to be able to enjoy God for eternity. And we will be able to explore who he is for eternity. And what's so amazing about this is he is so infinite and we are so finite that the more we get to explore him, the more we'll discover that we don't understand about him. And we'll only desire to explore him more. And we will never get bored of him. Because God is so much bigger than we can possibly imagine today. And that's what we're going to cover in Colossians 1, 15-23, as we continue this study for Him and by Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, making peace by the blood of his cross, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he starts off with he. Now this he actually brings us back to verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That he right there is actually a reference to God the Father because we're going to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, So the father who has qualified us has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 15, the he is a reference back to the son. So this is a description of who Jesus Christ is. And it's a big description. It is this preeminence that we need to discover. So in him, and if we remember, the the church in Colossae was struggling with a heresy that was Christ is not enough. There needs to be more. They thought that that's great if you came to know Christ, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, that's awesome. Now if you want to be really holy, if you want to be really righteous, you better start making your life uncomfortable. Give up worldly pleasures. you got to do so many more works to be truly righteous. And so they thought that you had to earn your righteousness. So Paul is writing this letter to this church to remind them that Christ is enough And Christ has completed it all. You are full and you are complete in Christ. There's no amount of extra work that you need to do. So he is the image of the invisible God. So now we get into this description of who the Son is. And he is the image. This lets us know that Jesus is the visible form of God. In the triune Godhead, that is, there is one God, but three persons, together as one God. Does that make any sense? I know sometimes people really try to like make an academic argument here, and they try to figure out this triune Godhead. But I go back to, I don't think we can fully recon- reconcile the triune Godhead. So if that makes sense to you, let me know. Maybe you can describe it better. But I don't think we can. My limited, finite mind just can't fully re- reconcile the idea of three persons, but one God. It's a bit of a mystery. And something that I believe because that is what the Bible reveals to us. That is what God has revealed about himself. That there are three persons that are co-equal as one God. So that in this triune God, the Father is invisible, and Jesus is the image Jesus is God, the visible part of him. So when God created us, he created us in his image. We are image bearers of God. Each one of us bear his image. Jesus isn't just an image bearer. He is the exact image. So though we bear a resemblance to God, Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. So all the way back in the Gospels, one of Jesus' followers, Philip, asked Jesus. He says, Jesus, can can you show us the Father? And Jesus is like, Philip, I can't believe this. How long have you been walking with me? Don't you yet understand that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father as well? So he's not just an image bearer of the Father, he is the Father, but yet he is also three persons. Isn't that crazy? It's something that our finite minds can't quite comprehend. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So the firstborn of all creation, firstborn is not that he was the first to be created. Some people key in on this verse and they think, oh, see, Jesus was created. That's not what this means. Firstborn was actually a reference to rank or status in those days. So he's not saying that Jesus was created. He's saying that Jesus is first in rank. He is first in status over all creation. So not only is he the invisible, or sorry, not only is he the visible person of the Godhead, but he also has the rank of being over, or being number one of all creation. And then he, he gives us the reason why in verse fifteen or sixteen. He says, "For so that's the reason." So he is the visible God, and he is the position of rank over everyone. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he has first in rank because all things were created by him. So this word by is a preposition meaning uh, by or among or by means of. So it is the idea that all things came into being, all things were created By means of Christ. Without Christ, nothing would exist. He is the agent of creation. This also helps us understand that it is not just Christ in his human form that is the image of God, but even before the world was made, he was the image, the visible person of God. And by means of that visible person of the Godhead, all things were created. All things in heaven, earth, visible or invisible. These are words that are all-encompassing terms. All things, even things we have yet to discover, all things were created by him. There's not one thing that came about without him. So this used to kind of confuse my kids. They would ask So Jesus invented cars? No, humans did that. So Jesus invented Legos? No, humans did that. The point here is that Jesus made all the material in the world. So humans can only make out of things that already exist. God made everything exist out of nothing. God doesn't need any material to work with. He can make material appear. You and I can't do that. We have to have the material. So we cannot develop any new material. We can only recycle or reuse what God has created. So he created from nothing. We create from something. And not only did he create everything that was visible or invisible, he also created thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So God created authority so that there would not be chaos in this world. So these authorities, these authority structures, were created by God. God created authority structure, and he did it so that there wouldn't be chaos The problem is, man has twisted what God created for good for our own self-interest. So instead of being servants to help people and creation flourish, people began to grab authority for their own self-interest. But that's not how God designed authority. He designed it so that that we could live in a structure that would help all of creation to thrive. So if you are a person in authority, God designed authority figures to be those who serve, not those who rule over. So we get this idea that Jesus is the creating agent of all things. The rest of 16 emphasizes this idea. And we'll see that, it, that everything was created by, or by him, all things were created, but also all things were created through him and through. For him, so we see three different prepositions here: by, through, and for. This through means on account of. All things came into being on account of Jesus. So he is the agent of creation, and also he is. Uh, all things came on account of him. There is not one thing that exists without Jesus. If it exists, it is because Jesus exists. This means that there is not one single thing that can exist outside of Jesus. But not only were things made on account of him, but they were made for him, or on behalf of him. So all things were created by him, and all things were created for him. You were created for him. You exist for Jesus. For his pleasure. All things were created to glorify and honor Jesus, including you. Because he is the creator of all things and all things exist because of him, in the end, all things will bring honor to him. Even things that are living in rebellion to him now will one day bring honor. To him. So he planned creation, he created, and he will be glorified and honored through his creation. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is before all things, just like verse 15, this is a rank or a status. So this is his status or ranking is before all things. Jesus is the first. He is preeminent. And Paul once again gives us the status to adu- introduce another accomplishment of Jesus, that he holds all things together. There is not one thing that can exist outside of Jesus. All things exist inside of him. He holds them all together. From the smallest molecular level to the greatest universal level. If for some reason Jesus ceased to exist, everything would cease to exist. When I was in high school, I knew uh, a girl, she was an acquaintance of mine, and she was a Satanist. And I used to always be like, don't you know, like, it's very clear that Satan loses. And she was like, if we could just get our numbers together, and just rebel hard enough, and if we could just fight against God enough, then, then we could actually win. And, and I would always be like, but even in your win, you would still lose. Because if for some reason Jesus could be defeated and he ceased to exist, you would then also cease to exist. But Jesus can't be defeated and he will never cease to exist. But if for some reason he did, everything else would stop. We would cease to exist. So everything continues to exist by his enabling them to exist. Now that Paul has established Christ's role and authority over all creation, he will move on to Christ's role and authority over the church. Now this, I think, should be fairly obvious. His role and authority over the church should be fairly obvious. It should be a no-brainer based on his role over all of creation. But just in case we missed it, Paul lays it out for us, starting in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is the head of the body, the church. So there are, throughout the New Testament, we learn of two different types of churches, or two different ways the word church is used. One is a local church, that is a local group of believers, or believers in in a certain locality, who have made a commitment to one another. That is a local church. But then there is also the universal church. The universal church includes all believers from all times, everywhere. So it's everyone who has ever put their faith and trust in Christ is part of the universal church. I think this is emphasizing the universal church here. Don't get me wrong, Jesus is also the head of the local church. But this instance, he's emphasizing that Jesus is both the source and the authority figure for the universal church, the church that has existed since Jesus rose from the dead. So he is the source, meaning he created the church. Without Christ, we would still be lost in empty religion, we'd still be trying to earn our salvation, we'd be trying to earn our righteousness. But because of his death and resurrection, you can be made righteous, Without working for it, you simply believe. You put your faith and trust in Christ, and He makes you righteous before God. And not only is He the source, but He is also the final authority within the church. He is the final authority over the church. And where do we find His authoritative word? Well, it's in Scripture. It's in the Bible. If you want to know what Jesus has to say about the church, how we should conduct ourselves, we need to turn towards the Word. So all who have put their faith in Christ belong to the universal church and we have our existence in Christ and have to answer to Christ. So he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Unlike last time, this is not a rank. But describing why he has the rank of head. Because the church has its beginning in him. Without him, there would be no church. And when did the church begin? Well, it began with him being the firstborn from the dead. So once again, we run into this word firstborn. And once again, I think that this is not this is a rank, but I think it also goes back to his, uh, his start, the start of the church. So it is both rank and it is a beginning. So he is the firstborn from the dead. Though Jesus was not the first to come back, from death, we read that Jesus actually raised other people from the dead. He was the first to come back in a glorified state. Those others that Jesus raised from the dead, they were going to die again. Not Jesus. He came back to eternal life. Now, he is the firstborn from the dead, meaning that there will be others you and I, if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, we will come back from the dead in a glorified state to eternal life, never to die again. So he continues, that in everything he might be preeminent. So notice that this is not just preeminence over the church. He has that. He is preeminent. He is first in rank or status. But this actually references that he is preeminent in everything. He has the highest rank or status in everything. And part of the reason why he's done that is because he is the creator of all, but also because in his obedience to the Father, he came and lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, paying the price for your sin and my sin, and then he rose again, and that also gives him preeminence. So he's not just preeminence because he's the creator, He's also preeminent because he is the firstborn from the dead. And then verse 19 gives us the reason why he has this preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the fullness of God, this emphasizes that Jesus is fully God. All of the deity of God, all the power and all the glory of of the Godhead, the totality of God is in Christ. Some have this idea that Jesus is like lesser than the Father or that there's some kind of ranking system within the triune Godhead. And I don't think that is correct. If we began to rank the three persons of the Godhead, that ranking system actually goes against God. We cannot divide them up so easily. They are one, they are co equals. There is not one person of the Godhead that is better than the other. I know that is confusing. But our finite minds cannot fully understand an infinite God. If, for some reason, we can fully understand an infinite God, then we have a small God. And so I go back to, for eternity, we will get the pleasure of exploring who he is. And we will never tire of exploring who he is and we will never reach the end of who he is. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis in the last battle, uh, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle. They, they get to reach the, uh, what C.S. Lewis is uh, in that world would be the equivalent of heaven. And they keep going further into this place, into this world. And the more they go in, the more real it gets and the more enjoyable it is. But they also realize that the more they go in, the more they can go further in. And so the the line is, further up, further in. And he keeps going, further up and further in. Because the more they go in, the more they realize that what was behind them wasn't as real or as pleasurable as what's in front of them. And that's what we get to do with God for the rest of eternity. Is we'll be able to explore this eternal creature that our finite minds cannot fully understand. And the more we think we understand, the more we'll realize that he's actually deeper and more complex than we really understand. It's kind of mind-blowing. So it pleases the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that the totality of the Godhead, all of his power and authority, all of his rank and status, would dwell in Jesus. And to praise one is to praise the other two. So for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and then in verse twenty, and through him to reconcile himself to all to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his of his cross. So this term reconcile means to make new. So just as being creator of all things gave Jesus his preeminence, so also being the reconciler of all things gives Jesus his preeminence. To make all things new. So this idea of making something new, to reconcile something, as you take something worn out, you take something old and broken, and you make it so that no one could see anything but a new creation. They, they would think that a car, well, let me step back. When I think of this, I think of people who restore cars. I have a cousin that does this. He, he restores cars, and what his whole goal is to make it so it looks like it just came off of the assembly line. And, and when he does his job right, when he does his job properly and correctly, you couldn't tell the difference of the car he has restored and the car that comes right off the assembly line. There is no difference between the two. That's what this term reconciling means. That he will make all things into this new creation. That, that you, when you look at it, you can't even tell what the difference is. It takes skill and it takes time and patience when we are doing it. And you make something that is old and broken and tattered and used... You make it. You restore it back to the very thing that it once was. So Jesus is reconciling or making all things or making new all things to Himself. Now, so we keyed in on a verse before, which kind of has some heresy in it that uh, Jesus was created, and we, we we discarded that idea that firstborn means that that is the status of ring, not that Jesus was created. And now we get into another place that some other people like to key in on, and they say, hey, he's making all things, he's reconciling all things, and so they would say that Jesus is going, there will be no hell, there will be no one going to hell, because Jesus is going to reconcile or make all things new again. And I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. The scripture is very clear that there will be a hell, and that people who do not come to know Christ in this life are destined for eternity there. So what does this mean that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself? Well, I think first we have to understand that that means that all things are broken. All things are broken. We live in a broken world. It doesn't take long for us to realize that. That in this world there is pain, there is suffering, there is rebellion against God. It is a world that has rebelled against God and is therefore broken. So based on this context, that all things were made by him and for him, and for this reason all things are under submission to him. He is first in rank over all things. The thing that is broken is a relationship with him because we no longer wanted to be under submission to Him. So, what is broken? Our submission to Him. And that has broken our relationship with Him. So, I think what is being reconciled is that all of creation will be in submission to His authority all creation will once again see that he has all authority over heaven and earth. That doesn't mean that all of creation will be fully reconciled to a perfect relationship with him again. But that all of creation will be reconciled and that they realize his authority over them. So this means that we can have a perfect relationship with him once again by trusting his work on the cross. Or if we don't do that now, we will be under his perfect judgment for our rebellion and destroying our relationship with him. So he is reconciling all thing, to himself all things and making peace by the blood of his cross. So the cross is the tool by which he used to reconcile all things to himself. So the, he will bring peace by the blood of his cross. For those who believe, it is the cross that brings us back into a perfect relationship with him because God is a God of justice. A price had to be paid for your rebellion against him. And Jesus paid that price. So that peace is offered to all of humanity. But those who reject this offer, the offer of the cross, the cross then becomes a tool used to judge those people. He gave them a way to be reconciled, to have a perfect relationship with him. But by rejecting it, the cross will be what will ultimately judge them. So by the cross, Jesus is in the process of putting all things in heaven and on earth, material and non-material, back in order. So what does this mean for you and me? We see now that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. He is much bigger than we ever imagined. He can fully sustain everything. There is no need for anything more. He is in the process of reconciling all things. So how does that affect you and me? Verses 21 to 23 answer that. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So alienated means to be a foreigner or other than. At one point, you were a stranger. You were alienated to God. And you were hostile. Hostile means to be against You were hostile in your mind. In your own minds, you were against God, actively rebelling. Now, we do a good job of justifying our actions, don't we? Oh boy, I can always look at someone else who is much more rebellious than me and justify how I am not rebellious. I can always say, man, their sin is horrible and it stinks, and my sin's just so small, and, and is it really that bad? But this is very clear that every single one of us has been hostile, we've been against God in some form or another. In your own way, at some point in your life, you have told God, forget you, I want to be the God of this area in my life. I don't want to submit it to you, I want to be in control. Maybe it was a small thing, like lying to your brother or sister. Maybe it's something you haven't even confessed yet. Maybe it's something you haven't even realized. But every single one of us, at some point, has been against God in our mind. And the result is that we do evil deeds. That's the result of being a stranger and being hostile, is that we commit evil deeds. Now, this doesn't just mean murder or adultery, but anything that does not mean God's holy standard. It could mean not taking a Sabbath rest. How many of us, at some point in our life, knew we needed to take a rest? We felt the conviction that we needed to rest. And yet, because of our own self-sufficiency, decided Not to rest. Well, Jesus laid it out very clear. He said, Even if you lust, you've committed adultery. Even if you have hated someone, you have committed murder. So you're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, you have a quick flash of anger, you want that person dead. God's holy standard. You've just committed murder. You have failed because of your alienation and hostility towards God. So that's who we were. But 22 lays out who we are. So you who once were, notice the past tense there. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's that word again, reconciled. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, he made you new. When you recognize that you have been hostile towards God, when you recognize that you have been alienated towards God, when you recognize that you have, at some form or another, committed evil deeds, and you recognize that that there is a price that needs to be paid for that, and you recognize that Jesus paid that price, and you put your faith and trust in his work on the cross, then he reconciles you. He brings you into a right relationship with him. And not only does that, does he do that, but he also presents you holy, blameless and above reproach. Holy means to be set apart. So he sets you apart. Blameless means that you are free from defect or blemish, no matter how bad you've messed up, no matter how bad you think you are still messed up. God sees you as blemish-free. Man, I can look back at my life and I can say, oh, how bad have I messed up? I rebelled against God. I shook my fist against Him. And the result was huge wounds and scars in my heart. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ, He no longer sees that, but He sees this blemish-free person. And not only does that But he also makes you above reproach. To be above reproach means unaccusable. You are now made unaccusable. Now don't get me wrong, I do not feel unaccusable. I can look at my past and think, man, I have a lot of stuff that I can be accused of, right? And there is an enemy out there that wants to accuse you. In fact, that's his name, is the accuser. And his whole idea is to drive a wedge in between you and God. But what's amazing here is that, that you are now unaccusable. Not because of anything you have done, but because of what Christ has done. I like to think of it this way. So when somebody is, somebody who is above reproach, it means that, that they are living a life in, in such a way that someone else would come and defend them. So let's say that at the end of the worship set today, the worship team decided that they really wanted some glory. There was a good set, people actually clapped. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to throw a party right here on stage. And Larry like got really into it and he slammed his guitar on the stage. Well, let's just pretend you haven't seen this. Just someone, you missed church today. Someone later on tells you, you should have been there. It was amazing. Larry slammed his guitar on stage as if to say, there's no better set. This is it. And Jen just went on this like huge drum solo, and it went on for 15 minutes, and it was amazing. And you wouldn't believe Hannah actually dove into the, into the congregation and started to crowd surf. It was amazing, and she was crowd surfing all around. And at that time, Isaac decided to get out his guitar, and he played a solo and decided that he was just going to sing a new song that he wrote about how awesome soccer is. It was so cool but you've been attending this church for a while, and you're like, wait a second. That doesn't sound at all like any of those people. That is being above reproach. Not exactly that you have never done anything wrong, but that when someone lays an accusation against you, Someone else knows you well enough to come to your defense. So we've got Satan who is the accuser, who is laying accusations before you. But what is amazing is you have got Jesus Christ, who as we have seen, is infinitely bigger, comes before Him, and comes to your defense. And He says, that's not Who they are, because I have made them holy and I have made you without a blemish. That's what it means to be above reproach. You are above reproach because Jesus comes to your defense. And then he continues if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So if indeed you continue in the faith, this is what's called a first-class conditional clause. I like the way a lot of theologians put it. Uh, It assumes the author assumes the reality of the statement. So I like the way a lot of uh, theologians put it, and they would say that this is an argumentative clause. Meaning, this is, uh, it's a true statement, but I'm throwing this out there as in case of an argument. So we could read it kind of like this. Since you are in the faith, or because you are in the faith. Paul is assuming they are believers, and because they are believers, they will continue in the faith. So if you remember, the heresy that was at Colossae was you needed something more than Christ. If you wanted to be truly holy, you had to do christ Plus. And what Paul is saying is that you have to understand when you put your faith and trust in Christ, it's no longer Christ plus. There's no earning your righteousness. If you have put in your faith in Christ, if you truly understand this, if you understand that Christ is your foundation, then. Now what's interesting, once again, we, we bring up that Colossae was built on a fault line. It was known for experiencing earthquakes. So, Paul uses this if with an assumption of the positive statement, along with a building metaphor that you are stable, you are steadfast, you are not shifting from the hope. And what this, he's building this idea of a, of a foundation that is rock solid on Christ. You could say that he, you could almost say it like this because your foundation is Christ. When the earthquake hits, you will not shift. Because your foundation is Christ, when all of those difficult circumstances come, when those hardships come, your house will not fall over. For those in Colossae that said it was Christ plus. Christ plus my good works. Christ plus giving up worldly comforts. Christ plus all of this that makes me righteous. They didn't have the same foundation because their foundation was never Christ in the first place. Their foundation was their works. Their foundation was a religiosity that was going to fell them when the earthquake hit. But if your foundation is Christ, if you recognize who Christ is, then you will not shift from the hope of the Gospel. So we will not shift because our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in the comforts of this life, or in the emotions, or in the good times of life. Our hope is in the gospel. The good news that Paul just laid out, that Jesus is the creator of all things. All things were created by him and for him. He sustains all things. He has reconciled all things through the cross. And because you have believed, there shouldn't be no amount of earth-shaking catastrophe that can take your hope. It's no longer in this earth but it's recognizing that one day you will also have the opportunity to go further up and further in. And the more you get to know Christ, the more you'll want to continue going further up and further in. Dear Lord, we thank You so much. We recognize that You have the highest rank, the highest status, Not just to show off, but because you created all. And not only did you create us, but even in our rebellion, you began the process of reconciliation. And that although we can't quite understand you, we know that in our finite minds, we get the opportunity to explore you for eternity. And we pray that right now You would help us to have that unshakable faith because You are the foundation. In Your name we pray. Amen.